0: The financial sector conduct authority now turning its attention to financial advisors who recommended to clients that they put their money into the catastrophe that is bhi trust it collapsed last month leaving potentially thousands of investors without their money the trustee Craig Warrener handed himself into police uh, recently and curators have managed to find just four and a half million rand. It's not known exactly how much was invested, how much has been misused, abused and lost over time. Uh, somebody closer to the story than most is Rob Rose, editor of the Financial Mail, on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. Is there evidence, uh, Rob? I mean, I think there would be, otherwise the Financial Sector Conduct Authority wouldn't be barking at that tree, but evidence that financial advisors were putting investors into a product that wasn't registered properly with the with the, with the proper authorities Good evening Bruce
1: um, so I have seen some some letters and various documents that do suggest some advisors were telling people that this was a you know it's, a good, it's not a bad thing to do and essentially acting as go-betweens between Craig Warner and individual people who put money into this particular scheme um, and I think that's part of the focus I think Bruce, as well, another part of the focus of the regulators' investigation is what registered or, or what sort of proper um, financial uh, companies were involved in, in supporting Craig Warner's BHI Trust. So I think it's about the entire ecosystem that allowed this thing to happen and flourish.
0: It's extraordinary isn't it? I mean, we know we, we know what the regulations are, we know what the guidelines are, but when financial advisers are sitting across the table from you and are saying, "You know what you need to do, Rob? This PHI trust, this guy, this craig guy, he's very clever." Mm. Um, he's a centidians old boy, you know. He, he's chairman of the old boys of the old boys association. Oh, what a guy. Um, and so you you blindly put money in without checking whether or not this guy's is properly registered or what his track record is and also just this idea of assets being held in a trust, you know, the the moment I heard about it, it sounded dodge, and the money's gone and is unlikely ever to be recouped. Certainly, that's what it looks like. The The curator's not able to find anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, Bruce, you've seen enough of these things to know that this is how it often works. Um, the guys at the center of it always use existing names and, you know, people that people know as credibility for themselves to kind of get more money into these schemes. It was the same with, with Barry Tannenbaum, who type it links to Edcock Ingram and and these kind of things. And people look at these associated names and think, well, you know, if they're invested, if they're part of it, if they, you know, if they are part of the whole scheme, then what am I What am I risking here? These guys know mm-hmm. far more than I do. Um, and so they're putting money in, so why shouldn't I? So I think that that's a big element of it. I think the Man and Guardian is running a feature on it tomorrow. I think, I think they, you know, they have a figure of 2.7 billion or so, I think it was, um, that was put in this thing. But at the moment, the exact number of people in the scheme and how much money was invested seems to be quite a moving target.
0: Is anybody sort of coming forward to you, Rob, and saying, "Yes, Rob, I put money into this thing, and I feel like a twit um, because I put plenty of appeals out, and I'm, you know, again, people are bruised and battered and have lost money, and they're going to be incredibly stressed about the fact that they've lost their money, in some cases, life savings, uh, having put all their eggs into this one Warren a basket." Um, have you sort of got any sort of feedback from people as to why they might have trusted the Craig Warren over others?
1: I think, I mean, the original application for a liquidation, I think, for the BHI Trust um, was based upon a lawyer who had done exactly that. And he spelt out how it had happened, how he put a little bit of money in, and it seemed to be legitimate. And I think that these fairly sketchy schemes work like this. You know, the first couple of payments work fine and you put more and more in, it's based upon the system of trust. That's how it's how Madoff worked, it's how Tannenbaum it's how worked, it's how all these schemes work. Is that The first couple of things, you know, go like clockwork. And then after that, you find out, you know, when you don't get the most payments, <laughs> when you don't get the payments you expect, that things are not quite as savory as you expected.
0: Rob Rose, thank you. He's the editor at the FM. And uh, thank you for joining us this evening, Rob Rose on The Money Show. Mduduzi Lutuli co-founder and executive director at Lutuli Capital, joins us on The Money Show this evening. If colleagues of yours, Mduduzi, were advising their clients to put money into this investment, which is held into a trust where there wasn't proper disclosure, where there doesn't seem to have been proper registration, and and this guy has been operating since the late 1990s, apparently operating in plain sight, as far as we can tell. Lots of people are aware of the guy, aware of the way in which he operates. I wonder um, what sort of trouble they might be in.
2: Uh, Good evening, Bruce. A lot of trouble, I would would think, because obviously if you're a licensed FSP, there's certain regulation and guidelines that you need to adhere to in terms of how you do business, uh, especially in ensuring that you treat customers fairly. You know, as a financial advisor, you have a fiduciary duty because, the client comes to you for exactly that, financial advice. They lean on you as the expert. They lean on you as the person who will go out there and do their due diligence because they're not the financial experts who, who will look at this thing and say, is this regulated? Is this a scam or not? Are the returns sustainable? And I think that's a big, big part of the story is that a lot of the victims, they are victims today because of the trust and authority that they put in those financial advisors and and that's why our industry is so heavy heavily regulated because as someone who gives financial advice to people there is a huge fiduciary responsibility on you meaning that yeah you're responsible for you're responsible for the advice you give um, and the consequences thereof
0: yeah, unfortunately, you can lose your license, but you're, you're, the clients you advised have lost their life savings. Um, yeah, you Most lose your, your livelihood potentially, but they've, they've lost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's unfortunately in a case like this, probably no recourse for them because this looks very much an unregulated investment environment.
2: Most definitely. So the, obviously the case will have to run its course. Um Those advisors who are putting clients' money in here will have to put up their case. They could be possibly debarred and and, and lose their license. This is one of the reasons why we constantly hop on and tell clients to work with a licensed FSP. I constantly tell clients, listen, I'm a licensed FSP. That doesn't necessarily actually mean that I'm the best at my job, I'm good at my job. Actually, why that is so important is that if I'm not good at my job, if I'm negligent, if I'm committing fraud, if I'm doing something wrong... You as the client have some sort of recourse because as a F, uh as a, as a licensed FSP, you can report us to the ombudsman. The ombudsman can can come into our business, look at what we're doing, look at the advice that was given, the record of advice, and then and then and then uh, make a judgment. And also, as a licensed FSP, you have a responsibility to to have what's called indemnity insurance. So in cases yeah. like this, where if, if I'm a licensed FSP, I've given bad advice, there is a case and and it's found against me. I have an insurance policy that would make sure that those clients are able to recoup their funds. Where now um, they'll probably have to take it through the courts and, and see what's, what's left, if anything.
0: Yeah, and certainly the creator's not finding anything. Thank you, Mduduzi Lutuli, for coming through for us this evening, co founder and executive director at Lutuli Capital.
2: The Money Show,
0: The Markets and on to rudy fandamadva rudy is a portfolio manager at advice works he's on the line to us this evening uh rudy i looked at today's market activity and i was underwhelmed i was less disappointed than i was yesterday and it's this bloody frustration frustration i have and i'm sure everyone else in the world has of sort of lurching from federal reserve statement to federal reserve statement trying to find clarity in a mud bath
3: Evening, Bruce. Oh, you're quite right. It's very much data-driven and and sentiment-driven at the moment. You know, and, and one is often just relieved that the market hasn't been under under more pressure than than one possibly would have expected. In the last week or so, generally markets have been in a in a better position. But a lot of that has been on a on a theme based on you know that bad news is basically good news, and you know the fact that. Economic data coming out indicating that, that the global economy is under pressure, uh, possibly means that we could see, see interest rate cuts in the, in the relative short term. And the, the hope on the back of that, that that would be supportive of economic growth and valuations for, 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 asset prices and the like. Um, but it is lurching from one, one place to the next. And at the moment, everybody's waiting for Jerome Powell to speak and and also on, on further inflation data out of the U.S. next week. So so we're not really gaining a lot of traction. In the meantime, generally speaking, globally, uh, economic data is not, not looking particularly encouraging.
0: Yeah, it's not particularly encouraging, but we move on from the macros and let's get into some of the news events. I mean, today's SAPI results and uh look quite remarkable paper demand below 2020 levels yet they somehow seem to be pleasing the market they've reinstated their dividend and things seem to be going just a little bit better yeah it's a little bit
3: odd Bruce, and i think uh, the reaction we've seen on the market SEPI was uh, was a in the region of 5-ish percent today um, is partly also driven by, by what we see in the South African market where I think we've just become too cheap now. Um, the South African market generally now is, is as cheap as it's been since the, the emerging market crisis, and so it hasn't been this cheap this millennium. Uh, and eventually things just get too cheap, and I, and I think that's partly the case with SAPI. In you know, other the actual results themselves were not particularly pleasing. Um, if one looks of year on year, the headline earnings a share were down 62%. Uh, and even this fourth quarter compared to the fourth quarter of the previous year uh, Doesn't make for for pretty reading. Uh, it is little better than the third quarter So there's a slight improvement and there are elements of, of positiveness in, in the results. they paid down Their debt quite materially. It's now just over 1.1 $1. 1. ish billion dollars. So that's the lowest in 30 years South African unit had its best results in rand terms that it's, that it's potentially ever had in the U.S. unit, uh, the second best results that they have had. Uh, they're certainly under pressure from a, from an economic perspective. They talk about in, inflationary costs, uh, are certainly obviously biting them. Weak demand from China, weak global growth, uh, all contributing to, to demand for their paper products generally being under pressure. Uh, graphic paper specifically, they, they talk of demand destruction which possibly is, is, is never going to recover to, to previous levels. Um, the d- dissolved pop business is, is doing better. It seems like pop sales are up 7% um, even though prices aren't really coming to the party there. Uh, so they're, they're managing the business, I think, very carefully and have done a lot to to operationally correctly position the business but the, the environment obviously is, is still quite uncomfortable. Uh, and they do talk about the next quarter possibly being being worse again than than the current yeah. one, uh, I think the opposition themselves appropriately r- for this environment, but it's tough.
0: Yeah. It's a dreadful, a dreadfully difficult environment to be in. And then you've got climate change and that's going to be threatening forests. And you've got the risk of wildfires. And these guys take preventative measures. But when you look at the scale of some of the wildfires in places like Canada and those plantations there, and you look at the, 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 the sort of wildfires you see across Greece and other parts of the European Union over the summer months, and you've just got to be really apprehensive about investing in these sorts of environments. Their debt's down to a 30-year low. I mean, Certainly, uh, Steve Binney is managing this business far more aggressively than perhaps his predecessors were able to or did.
3: Absolutely, he's made a a lot of positive differences uh, uh, and and he's been there for some time now, as far as I can recall, uh, probably a decade or so, I guess. Um, And they've actively during that period been very very good at at paying down debt. Uh, They managed their dividends, I think, Better than the predecessors, uh, margins have been better managed. They've been more focused on, on products that that have markets and, and killing those that that haven't done well um, and and you know, cutting costs over over a period of time. Quite consistently improving, the return on on capital and return on on assets. So that the business has been produced. So I, I don't think they're at fault. It's it's the environment that's been a difficult one. Yeah. Nonetheless, as I said, you know, I think SAPI is now so cheap that it is offering value even with a depressed outlook. You know, it's on a P of probably four and a half and a dividend yield of, of over 6%. So at, at these levels, is, uh, we don't need a lot of good news for, for further relating yeah. to, to potentially occur.
0: The world's still betting against paper. I mean, the bet against paper began, I think, 20 years ago as the internet began to show its potential as a vehicle for transmission of information. And as we become better at storing information digitally and there's been the explosion of cloud storage services, the demand for paper will come under pressure. I think that's fairly natural. But people have been predicting the death of paper for as long as they've been predicting the death of the internal combustion engine. I suspect the internal combustion engine will go long (laughs) before paper does. It's certainly looking
3: that way, Bruce, uh, we are seeing graphic paper clearly is is on a, seems like a bit of a a death spiral. Um, There are other other people in the industry that I think have been, uh, for example, Mondi have been very active in terms of producing new products that are relevant for this environment. Uh, They're producing uh, bags, uh, for cement and, and other packaging that are massively biodegradable, um, uh, so w- which which obviously is advantageous. They've read the, the packaging cycle very cleverly in producing packaging f- specifically for goods that are ordered online. Uh, so the, the, I think anticipation of the changing world has possibly been better and that placed them uh, in a position to to still benefit producing paper, but just uh, paper that's smarter and more more, more fit for purpose for the, for the current environment.
0: Yeah, talk to me about Trueworths. Um, retail sales figures have been awful. We've seen retail sales numbers coming under a huge amount of pressure. The retail sector was responding quite positively to the possibility of lower interest rates in the not-too-distant future. And you know, today's trading update out of Trueworths, again, caused everyone to revise their view on domestic retail.
3: Yeah, Bruce, I think Truus is still being bailed out by their, their offshore operation. So their, the business's sales looks like it's up in the region of 10-ish percent, uh, which which isn't bad under under circumstances. But of that, the domestic portion, the South African portion, is only up 5%. Whereas office in the UK in pound terms is up 18%. And, and in, in rand terms, once converted, is up about 38%. So that's really what what pulled up the sales numbers. Uh, you know, I think being flat in this environment in South Africa is probably not too bad a, a result, but, but certainly the, the the acceleration in sales coming from partly from currency and from the EU car operation, which seems to be doing very well at the moment, there is a little bit of stress seemingly uh, in in the credit uh, sales. Just talking about the the percentage of customers that are willing and able. To, to purchase uh, has has dropped from from fourteen percent to fifteen percent uh, of the of the the outstanding uh, debt.
0: Rudy Fundamental thank you. He is with Advice Work. I have to admit to laughing out loud when South Africa made its first half climate goals, and there was this almost celebration, like, look what we've done. We've made our climate goals, aren't we clever? And that's because we hardly produced any electricity. We weren't running ESCOM. ESCOM was broken. We weren't burning as much diesel as I think we burned over the World Cup and other things to make load shedding pretend to go away. But yes, certainly climate change is a deadly serious issue. And uh, it's no laughing matter, not for a moment. But yes, we did meet our first half climate goals, but because of load shedding, because of ineptitude, because of 15 years of load shedding. And the warning today, though, South Africa may miss its emissions goals for 2023. Uh, Or 2030, I beg your pardon, because simply we are unable to stop running uh, coal-fired power plants and we're going to have to keep them running longer than we is intended brendan abdenor is the acting head of pollution and climate change program uh, at the center for environmental rights and i I guess this is something we have to learn to live with here brendan that we're not going to meet these climate change targets because we are heavily dependent on fossil fuels and although we are ramping up alternatives as fast as we can we're not yet in a position where we can supplant the base load with anything sustainable at this point
4: Good evening, Bruce, and good evening to the listeners. Um, I would question whether we need to make peace with that. I think we need to do a sort of full accounting cost-benefits analysis of the cost of keeping the coal running. So firstly, technologically, it's quite possible to get the renewables in place to give us a lot of the supply that we need. Um, the Presidential Climate Commission's own electricity recommendation report says as much. Um, But if we look at what the costs of keeping the the coal going are, I mean, it can compromise our access to climate finance. If we look at the health implications, I mean, ESCOM at the moment, there's like 14 appeals out on the existing coal plants. And the the costs of adhering to the minimum emission standards are in the order of $620 So we're talking about huge amounts, never mind the disaster management costs. the the costs of maintaining these coal-fired power stations. So I think it's really questionable whether it makes economic sense, never mind the, the climate harm that we are trying to avoid.
0: I, I agree. I mean, the trouble with, I suppose, with the government and you're trying to balance a budget that's not balancing is they're looking at short term cost over long term uh, uh, pain. And we, we're no longer, I think, focusing on the long term. We're so busy playing, you know, fireman, fireman and putting out fires wherever we go um, that we are unable to be strategic about the the long term goals of in, ensuring that we are sustainable and ensuring that we don't do much more harm to the planet and ensuring that we don't have those long-term costs that you so eloquently expressed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it
4: sort of lays bare the gunfight the that's going on in the energy space at the moment. Um, a lot of different vested interests. I mean, we, we knew about the, the benefits of the switch to renewables quite a long time ago. Um, we know that... Had we built just five extra gigawatts over the last five years, 96% of load shedding could have been averted. But there are obviously very powerful interests that want to keep the current system in place. And uh, the bottom line is we're not seeing the political will that we need to see to actually go in the right direction.
0: No, we're not. I mean, did do have we made? Did we make any progress under Andre de Rater? I'm curious about this because since he was booted out so unceremoniously for being rude about the ANC, because um, that was essentially the reason for being kicked out early after he resigned, um, I wonder if he was making progress on this front and whether he was pushing it back against ANC interests and whether we've gone backwards since then. I don't know the answer to the question.
4: I don't even, I don't really want to comment on the rate's performance as such, but at the time that he was there, the Just Energy Transition Office at ESCOM was fairly active um, and took, took a look at a number of different aspects. It, it, it generally, the, um, with the exclusion of a 3,000 megawatt gas plant at Richards Bay, was generally leaning quite strongly towards renewables and looking at what it takes to implement a just transition in those coal affected areas where decommissioning where does take place, um, how successful that was is a question that's up in the air. But but it was grappling with these issues. Um, the just transition, of course, been critical. And some good news on the climate front is that today it looked like there was the, the establishment of a, a just transition labour centre. Um, Including involvement from all the union federations, which is going to look at the, the very difficult issues of making sure that no one gets left behind in this decarbonisation journey.
0: Yeah, but just to the point. I mean, are we going backwards at the moment under the under the new electricity minister Jose and Rabasa? Are we going backwards in terms of the climate change agenda, um, where previously we seemed to be making some at least measured progress? For the most
4: part, if we delay decommissioning, I mean, the 2019 IRP has got a whole schedule. If we delay that, we are going backwards. Um, if we continue to authorize development of carbon-intensive projects, we are going backwards. If we keep on searching and exploring and extracting gas offshore, onshore, we are going backwards.
0: Brendan Abdenal, acting head of Pollution and Climate Change Programme at the CER this evening on The Money Show.
5: Bruce Whitfield
2: on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m.
0: Darren Levy joins us now, Chief Executive at Vida Cafe, and I saw your announcement today Darren about these new beans that you've got, seasonal coffee blend called Redberry and that's very nice Christmasy and all of that sort of stuff but it struck me that beyond the experience that your customers are going to get in a cup, there's something really interesting happening in the background amongst coffee growers in South Africa uh, because the coffee trend which really has exploded since yourselves and Seattle and everybody else started getting really serious about the coffee shop. Culture in South Africa. What 15 years ago, has there been a fundamental shift in coffee production in South Africa as well? Uh,
5: evening, Bruce. Good to chat to you again. Um, I think we're seeing the beginnings of another positive cycle in that. Um, unbeknownst to many people, coffee started to be grown in the late 1800s. here. it's been through various cycles. In the late in the late 1980s, there was. Roughly about 2000 hectares of coffee in the country and it's dropped down now to under two, under a hundred, uh, on the back of various economic and, um, sort of social challenges. And, uh, we saw the opportunity to reignite that, uh, coffee growing industry, um, through getting behind and launching this 100%, uh, SA blend called Redberry. So still very small, but the potential is enormous and there's an amazing group of growers. Uh, mostly in Mpumalanga and KwaZulu-Natal who are ready to do whatever they can provided they've got the, the demand from organizations like such as ourselves and hopefully many others because it's certainly we're very happy with the quality and what we've managed to um, produce here together.
0: Okay, so I mean, this is an initiative really to resurrect then the coffee industry in South Africa. I wasn't aware that it was actually that dire. So from 2,000 hectares under coffee plants in the 80s down to under 100 hectares. So 100 rugby fields worth of coffee plants. That's not very many at all, is it?
5: Not, not at all. Um, but the plans in place, and we'll be right behind it, are to quadruple the the one ton only that we, uh, we took this time just to launch Redberry. Um, and in 10 years, there plans to be um, back at 10,000 hectares. And that's all in place. So there's seven, the, the, the analysis that's been done is there's actually an excess of about 750,000 hectares available that's suitable um, through climate and position to actually grow. So we're still away away from that, but we're looking at what is again, hopefully a steep curve to, to resurrect that industry um, in the country.
0: Because so much of the traditional coffee buy, coffee growing world is under a huge amount of climate pressure. There's civil war in some places. And so some of the traditional coffee growing areas are actually taking a lot of flack from the planet. And that's run as a result. Coffee production in some parts of the world is actually under threat, quite substantial threat.
5: Yeah, 100 percent. And um, I mean, from a, from a sustainability perspective, in terms of us as a coffee uh, a coffee business, we are sensitive to that, it's not just um, you know, supply and climate factors and uh things like exchange rates, which are very, very significant when you are trading in, in, in your biggest commodity as an input. Sure. Um so what you're doing here is you're protecting yourself, you growing what's hopefully a sustainable uh market, uh and, and um uh, industry which produces a lot of employment and, and uh and, and, and business opportunity. And that's something that was very, very dear to us. The product is delicious. Um, issues around altitude are somewhat uh, of a myth if you talk to the experts. And as long as the climate is correct and the areas and the soil are 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 ideal in, in, these, in these two regions specifically um, their potential is just incredible and we're just so delighted to be able to be a part of it and hopefully the forefront of as I said the, the growth of some of a fantastic local industry not just the, the coffee shop side of things or, or retail part of it
0: no, no exactly right I mean the things the coffee shops will depend on solid reliable supply of great quality beans into the future and if you can get them domestically as opposed to the massive cost of imports and the dollar based denomination of these uh, of the charges around these things, you'll probably be better off on over the long term. Talk to me about terroir, um, which is what the wine people call the earth and the way in which the rain falls and the the climate and the environment. I mean, one sees single varietal coffees, one sees coffees from certain estates being sold, certain regions being sold, and it's very clear that the the robusta bean is not just the robusta bean, the arabica bean is not just an arabica bean. It does matter where the thing is grown. It's from that, the, The conditions under which it is grown and then the conditions under which it is roasted, of course, are absolutely pivotal in providing a taste profile. You're arguing very strongly that the areas of of KZN and perhaps into Mpumalanga, that there is terroir or land that Mm. is going to be perfectly Mm. suited for potentially a globally competitive industry.
5: Well, 100% correct, and I'll answer that question in a minute. Just maybe a, a slight uh, add-on to what you said earlier: is the opportunity eventually is to also export, and if you think about the coffee-producing yeah. countries, of, of which Brazil is one, and start to think about bricks, there's a there's a wonderful two-way opportunity. But that's that's another topic. But to get back to your question around the the, the ability here and, the, and 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 the soil and the regions, it's it's exactly that, and the wine analogy is perfect. It's a very similar grape or or seed. And whether it's, you know, a wine that's grown in Stellenbosch versus Napa or Bordeaux, those will have different flavors depending on the soil climate and processing methods. And it's exactly that 100% Arabica seed that we have access to that's been carefully selected and grown in these regions. And um, I'm pretty confident, and based on only the one day of feedback that we've got in an early launch last week or two weeks ago, that it's a delicious product that we've created. Um, so uh, once again, we're really excited, and you're right. There's there's a wonderful, wonderful, fertile um, um, opportunity here to to grow a fantastic local coffee industry.
0: That's brilliant, Darren. I'm. I will most certainly make, be sampling red berry, um, just because mm-hmm. I'm curious about what we're producing in the in this country, and I'm curious about the quality of what we're doing. And I, I want us to be the best of the world at more things. We're good at many things, uh, sheep shearing, cricket, and and rugby amongst them. But we're good <laughs> to be taking on the world at coffee as well. In addition to, of course, superlative wines and many other things. Um, talk to me about Boost, which is your sort of um, wannabe brand that. I'm, I came across in Cape Town in the last couple of months. I went there again a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just not yeah. seeing enough of them around. What's holding you back?
5: Yeah, um sweetbeat um, uh, is, is is the brand of this uh, additional um, sort of fast casual healthy eating uh, brand. Um, we have uh, we've grown it to nine stores, just one store in um, in Gauteng and and eight in in the Western Cape. Um, focusing on various aspects of of the brand and tweaking a few things here or there, but um the plans are still to grow it aggressively um early okay. in, in the Oops. next year to keep going again. Thank you very much. Yeah.
0: No, no, absolutely. It's a really interesting, I mean, it's a really interesting idea. Kauai, of course, dominant, dominant in that particular sector no real competition. And the problem with, that, I mean, healthy eating, and I know more and more of us, I think we're more conscious and we're being more careful about the future. But if you go to the Santan food court on a day, the cues at healthy right. eating are a lot shorter than the cues at KFC, for example. Um, you know, it takes, you know, the, it's, it's quite a high risk venture that you're going into, isn't it?
5: yes um you know, the industry you know when you it, it's the name healthy eating has various connotations, so I think it, conscious eating is a very good way of 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 describing yeah. what what it is that you're offering um it's not junk food um which is a you know very negative term it's all made fresh um delivered fresh tastes delicious and uh and and you know is 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 overall very very healthy, but we think there is a lot of potential to be also be part of a movement to to uh, make this eating um, more accessible and to provide some element of choice in the market, and uh, that's that's the rationale for for this this uh, this chain that we're busy growing.
0: Uh, long may it last. Thank you, Darren Levy, Chief Executive at Vida e Cafe. Really interesting um, how the, you you get industries that grow and then they've got a problem. They've got a shortage of supply, or they can't get the quality they need, or they're looking into the future, saying, "Where are we going to get beans from?" If the droughts continue in X Y Z part of the world, and we can't get the right, well, why don't we help farmers grow the product for us? And you get this wonderful circular economy effect happening. That raising a glass, of course, is a subtle tip to the Absa Champagne and Art Festival, which is happening, um, in, uh, which is happening on your radio this time tomorrow. I find our collective obsession with. Titanic, so interesting. I took my family to see the traveling exhibition when it came to South Africa. I've been obsessed about it since I was a kid. Just the images of Titanic pointing up toward the stars and disappearing underneath the ocean surface. And then the film and oh my goodness me, it all became just wonderful. But now a first class dinner menu from the Titanic is part of a collection of maritime items that is going on auction in the UK this weekend and could fetch thousands of dollars. Uh, It's dated April the 11th, 1912, which is day one of Titanic's ill-fated maiden voyage. There were oysters and salmon and hollandaise sauce, beef, squab. What's squab? S-Q-U-A-B. Duck, roast chicken, green peas, parsnip puree, delightful, and something called Victoria pudding. But the menu from that night, which has got the White Star Line flag at the top and has got signs of water damage, hardly surprising, uh, it'll go up on auction. It could reach as much as $86,000. It's the only known copy from the opening night of that particular voyage, three days before Titanic, of course, hit the iceberg and went to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, Let's catch up with Andre Morgenthal this evening, project manager for the Agalas Wine Triangle. And I saw a disturbing column from the um, inimitable Michael Frigen today, talking about this beautiful Agalas Wine Triangle and the huge amount of work that's been put into it, Andre, in terms of developing it as a wine producing area, it's getting lots of positive acclaim from global wine experts and lots of positive write-ups in international media, but it's being threatened. Why is it being threatened?
6: Good evening, Bruce. Thank you for the opportunity and good evening to your listeners as well. Um, there's an application for prospecting for mining that's been um, set up. So we are very concerned about this because um, of the potential damage
7: of the, our environment.
0: Um, okay, but talk, take, take me through the process. What's What's been going wrong? Why is it going wrong? And is anything being done to try and stop it?
6: Well, let's start with the implications. Um, We first can't figure out why exactly um, they they want this group wants to mine there because the swells are not, you know, uh, it's it's not conducive to mining gold, silver, and tin in in the Overberg region. So the implication would be if they get the mining rights. Um, and they call it open cast mining, which is not deep shaft like you guys have up in, yeah. in Gauteng. This is an this is blasting away. As, as uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a mining engin- engineer, I'm in the wine business. But what we understand from the geologists is that they're blasting away the top soil to get to the 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 rock to mine um, uh, for potential minerals and for, uh, for gold and, and and silver and tin. So that's a big concern for us because, one, we have uh, a lot of endangered environment and flora um, in in that area, especially renoscelbores that's extremely endangered. And um, if that happens, and uh, as far as I understand, the smallest sample of what will be excavated is the size of 300 um, rugby fields. And... Two generations will not see the rehabilitation um, of that, that, that uh, uh, devastation. Um, one of our members, uh, Johnson de owns a brand called Skop in the pier, and he's a geologist. He mines gold in the Congo, and he told me that when he bought his farm 20 years ago, he went actually and sniffed around, and he found where an excavation was done by a company, a London company in, 18, in 1830, 1880, and he found that uh, what he called it uh, a, a a dit where you uh, delve into this uh, the side of a mountain or a hill and he took samples and it was negative so we are concerned about what the motivation is for actually trying to do this um, and we're more concerned about our um uh, food security because of the dust that will settle on grains and won't mm. be
0: able to And this is the this is the important thing here, Andre. Because I mean, I, my, my next question would be, can you not coexist with open cast mining? And if not, why not? What are what are the constraints to coexisting as a wine they, producing area next to open cast mines?
6: Apart from aesthetics. I mean, as as Bruce Jack said, you know, why why, why, why would you like to taste wine next to mine? Uh, um, And the the thing is that our environment is endangered as it is, and we'll lose um, uh, endangered species. I mean, the runoff water from this excavation will go into the freshwater rivers and kill off uh, an indigenous freshwater fish species called the redfin, and that's the last uh, community in, in the world. So we can't coexist because of um, the job losses, for example. If if we can't sell the grains, we can't sell our grapes. when the dust settles on it, then we can't um, run businesses and we lose business. So I got asked by um, John Mason the other day, but what about job creation with this mining operation? But the negatives way outweigh the, the, the positive possibilities.
0: Who gets to make the and call then, then? Um, Andre? I mean, you, you guys you guys obviously objecting to this and you will fight tooth and nail to prevent it from yeah. happening. But ultimately, who gets to make the call? Is it a my, department of mineral resources? Is it an Environment department yeah. of the environment? Is it yes. agriculture? I mean, where, where on earth does this go for an objection?
6: Yeah, yeah, it's mining and environment. So, so we, we are fighting from all sides um, in terms of environmentalists, geologists, environmental um, lawyers, Trying to stop this because we 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 can't get these applications go through for prospecting because, as I understand, ninety nine percent of these applications go through to mining and that will totally destroy, um, as I said, the environment. And also then our wine tourism, and our tourism community. And you mentioned how hard we've worked now the last few years on the Gullis Wine Triangle as a destination, and um, it will just um, devastate us.
0: We'll let you get back to your wine testing. Thank you for stepping out of it, and please apologise to your class, Andre. Andre Morgental, the project manager for the agalas Wine Triangle, um, drawing attention to a standoff and an environmental standoff, a business standoff. It is a standoff between wine producers on something that they've been building uh, for the last three decades versus a mining industry that's saying we think there may be something there worth digging out the ground, and we're going to do it in the form of open cast mining. It's a an interesting quandary, of course, and one that we will watch from afar with interest. Jeff Bezos. Oh, yes, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos said it. Your personal brand defines who you are, what you stand for, and describes your skills, and experiences. That's one uh, uh, definition. But Jeff Bezos is widely quoted as saying your brand is what other people say when you are not in the room. Anton Russell is Strategic Head for SME Support at Fitola. From a small business perspective, I mean, we go, oh, look at at my brand. No, it's not a brand, it's a logo. Oh, look at my brand. No, it's just a name. Look at my brand. No, it's just a a letterhead. That's not a brand, is it, Anton?
7: (laughs) No, it isn't, Bruce. Hi, good evening. Lovely to be on the show again. Absolutely not. And I think that's probably the crux of the conversation is, What is a brand and why is it important for small businesses in particular to spend a little bit of time and focus and energy on actually defining what they stand for?
0: Well, how do we go about it? Because, I mean, you've ultimately got to have something that identifies you, that makes you unique, that does make you stand out and gives people a reason to relate to you.
7: Yeah, and I think that the definition of what a brand is ultimately that I really like is it, it sort of sums up and represents all the positive qualities of your company, your business, your team, your product and service in the eyes of your target customer. And that's the important component is it's so much more than just look and feel, logo, um, even things like uh, your corporate identity, et cetera. A brand is really what you are and and more importantly, how people perceive you. And if we think about, you know, brands that get it right consistently, I suppose the first one that pops to mind would be Woolworths, but there's many others. Um, they invest a hell of a lot of time in developing all the different touch points and components that their customers engage with. And that's really what builds a brand. It's not something that is a once-off. It's not something that once you've got your logo developed and you've got a set of values on the wall that uh, the job is done. It's It's a constant work in progress. And ultimately, what I've seen with small businesses that we work with is those that invest a bit of time and energy and focus on that side of their business ultimately reap the benefits.
0: A bit of time, energy, and focus and money now how much is a bit because you've used that term a bit um twice which is quite often a bit often um (laughs) uh, how much is a bit in the world of actually doing being the jack of all trades and master of none as you go into the startup as you start thinking about the business and formulating it and trying to assess what it represents and what it means and how it's going to be seen what is a bit in that context
7: it's probably more than a bit to be fair Um, and really, the, the 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 battle is won by looking at your business in its entirety. So, for example, I know certain companies that have a really strong brand identity. Their logos great. Their team all wear uniforms. Um, they've done a bit of work on, you know, what do we stand for? What is our culture? How do we want our customers to feel when they engage with us? But then, perhaps their products are not up to par or the service levels are not wonderful or the communication lacks. You send an email and you wait three days for a response. And ultimately, when it comes to investing and growing a brand that you can be proud of, that you can leverage, it's about a much more holistic view. It's about everything to do with your product, your service, your company, and more importantly, how people engage with it and how they're left feeling when they've engaged with it.
0: It's a really important aspect of it. And for often I think people are so busy that they kind of Assume that people will see them for who they are, which is wonderful and hardworking and authentic and fabulous and everything else. But unfortunately, it takes a lot more than that. You've got to be, you've got to tell people all of the stuff that you want them to think about you. You either do it overtly or covertly, but it is, it's a strategic process. It isn't one that just because you're wonderful and do everything so beautifully and everything is great and people say nice things about you, that's great. But it's not you've got to be the one to to shape the conversation, don't you?
7: Yes, and I think the unfortunate part or the part where we let ourselves down is that we only have as strong as our weakest link. So, you know, you can be really, really good in 95% of the work that you do and how you deliver it to the world, and it's ultimate. It's that five percent that's going to come back to bite you and end up with negative reviews on social media and that kind of thing. And that's really the core kind of takeout that I want people to have is that building a brand means living that promise, living those set of values or whatever the work you've done to kind of define your brand throughout the organisation. You can't live it sporadically. You can't. Exceptional in certain areas and kind of average or even poor in others because when you put yourself out there, when you put your company out there, when you launch your brand to the world, particularly with a brand promise, um, people hold you to that and they expect to get that level of quality or commitment across the board, you know, in, in every engagement. Even small little things like when I walk into your store. Do your staff look me in the eye and smile and greet me? Um, you might have beautiful products. You might have good pricing. But if that component is missing, I'm going to walk out of the store feeling, hmm, not really a company that I want to support again in the future. And I actually had an I experience some, like that yeah. quite recently, which uh, which mm-hmm. I can share if you like. Um, Please. I had my – okay, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: No, no, no. You go ahead because yours is much more interesting than mine. <laughs>
7: Well, let's hope so. Um, I had unfortunately was was involved in a smash and grab, and then I uh, had to go and get my car window repaired. And I went to the designated uh, repairer that my insurance had organised, and uh, I took my vehicle in, and I had a two hour wait because they needed to do tints on the windows and all manner of other things. And I walked into the the, the place and parked my car, gave the guy the keys, and he said, I'm going to do this and that. And he said, there's a little room back there where the customers can wait. And off I went, um, walked through a sort of a little service area where there were four or five of their consultants on the phones. Not one looked up and greeted me, walked into the little lounge room area, on the wall was proudly displayed their set of values and it was all about customer focus and commitment and (laughs) customer's (laughs) experience comes first. And I sat there for two hours and didn't so much as offered a glass of water or a cup of tea. I I might as well have been anonymous. And unfortunately the work was also a bit below par and that's another whole story. But I was left feeling like how does this disconnect actually happen when a customer, Companies obviously got a consultant in someone like myself. They've looked at their, you know, set of values. they come up with this really great manifesto, and yet they just don't live it. And it was something as simple no, as someone looking up from yeah. their phone call and, 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 and giving me a, a look in the eye and, and smiling and saying, "Hi, how are you? Thank you for your business. Would you like a cup of coffee?"
0: Yeah, sadly not. And, and and I was expect, I was actually, I mean, I was, I wasn't expecting that level of neglect. I was expecting filth and poor coffee and just, just a lousy environment to to wait and thought that that might be the story. But it's one and the same thing. It's that thing where you go into a nice restaurant. It doesn't have to be a nice restaurant. You go into any restaurant. And you just, you know, you have a level of expectation at a McDonald's, whether it be a spur, whether it be at a a privately owned restaurant, whether it be at a fancy restaurant, if you're lucky enough to go to those things. But you just get a slightly awful experience with the waiting staff or uh, the manager at the front door and immediately it's about the experience not about the food it's you being served plates of food and that's nice and you're getting you know, regular top ups and your drinks that's fine that's a process it's the the sense of joy that you get parting your money with your money you go to uh, into a really inexpensive restaurant and feel completely ripped off and to a, a really expensive one and feel that you've had a great value experience because of just the way you feel when you emerge and that for, for small businesses they get it wrong so often um, and it's it's unacceptable because they are shooting themselves in the foot because I'm hoping that you went to your insurance and you said, how dare you send me to that place? You chose them. This is you. This is on you. Um, they're your service provider, not mine. Yes. I didn't choose them. You sent me there and you must sort it out. And I hope that uh, you will do that. So how do we then become compelling and enticing as small businesses and really Offer something that we can achieve to a level that we can achieve that remains enticing, that remains attractive to a buyer that doesn't distract us to a point where we actually stop delivering the product or service effectively because we're so busy focusing on brand and doing things like that.
7: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it is a bit of a fine line. You know, how much time does one invest in that side of it in things like customer experience, customer service? But the reality is the brand is all about how you feel, how the consumer feels when they engage with your product, your service, your shop, your staff, your telecommunications processes, anything of that nature. It's, it's the takeout. It's an, it happens on an emotive level, and I think that's where people often get it wrong is that uh, you know we think if everything's shiny and clean and sparkly and the products and services do what we say they'll do, we've done our jobs. The truth is we haven't. It's, it's, it's the starting point. And I think that the key element that people can really leverage and that small businesses have the opportunity to do well is to understand that if you can connect with people on an emotional level, if you can make them feel something and hopefully something positive, you know, the product and the service and, the, and, and all of those things and the pricing are kind of a given. They're not, they're not winning you brownie points. They need to be up to scratch. It's the intangibles, the, the little things that people remember. And I think if we think about ourselves as consumers, what restaurants we frequent, you know, I have a certain coffee shop that I, I always go to, even though it's off my, my sort of work trajectory just because of how they treat me when I go in there. Their coffee's pretty good, their pastries are pretty good, they're not world class, but every time I go in there, the staff know my name, they know what I want to order, and there's this wonderful feeling of they're grateful to have me as a customer. And it's just those little things that can often tip the scales in our favor.
0: What differentiates you from the competition? What, what differentiates you from people who do something similar to you? And if you're in a commodity based offering or you're in a, a highly competitive environment, the one thing that will differentiate you, Anton, is that feeling. It's that, it's that, and, and it's reciprocal as well. You go in, you're in a good mood, you make them feel good, they feel good back, and they, or they feel good first, and you feel good back, whatever it might be. It is that thing that fundamentally can to change your day. You're probably too young, but I mean, the the TV series Cheers, it was that, that, that place that had such a strong brand... For that, <laughs> <laughs> such a strong brand ethos. I went to Boston, and I I was offered an opportunity to go to one particular place to go and look at a boring university, or I could go and explore the city. I said, now, I've got to go and see Cheers. And so off I went, and I found the Cheers barn. It's got the beautiful logo outside, and I opened the door, and it's just busloads of flippin' tourists who've been bussed into this hellhole of a place that is <laughs> trading off the name Cheers, and I just went, what a disappointment! I bought a coffee mug and I left, and I won't <laughs> go back ever again because the, but you bought the bus, coffee mug, unfortunately, and I and they didn't know my name. They didn't know my. Name. Well, there the you go, and that's a, that's an interesting
7: <laughs> point you made there. about you know, they didn't know your name. Obviously, the tagline for Cheers was, you know, where yeah, everyone exactly. knows your name. Everybody knows your name, and yeah. um, th- that's a brand promise. You know, ultimately, and and that's that's perhaps where small businesses need to start. Is what is your brand promise? What are you What are you promising the world? I and mean, there's a couple of bigger companies that have got really compelling brand promises. One that I always refer to, or that stands out for me, is FedEx, the courier company, and their brand is when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. Now, if you need to send a parcel with urgency, who are you going to choose? It's a no-brainer, yeah. because they've made this promise to the world that it will get there overnight, come hell or high water, and it sort of has all these undercurrents of commitment and customer focus and efficiency and reliability and it's powerful you can't really deny it and i think that's where we need to start what is our brand promise as businesses as small businesses what are we offering the world why are we different why should they choose us over all the other opportunities or options that they have out there and if we can define that and then more importantly live it consistently you know that's that's the bulk of the battle
0: one Anton, thank you. Lovely to chat again. Anton Russell, the uh, strategic head for SME support at Fitola. Brands, branding, brand promises, and what they mean to you. Absolutely pivotal listening this evening here on The Money Show for your small business. The Money Show. Personal finance with Warren Ingram. Warren Ingram, co founder at Galileo Capital. He is a certified financial planner. He is a regular contributor to the money show. He used to do boxing but then got tired. Um <laughs> you know, that, that, it was a new kind of introduction. I'm I'm working on it, Warren. Now listen, <laughs> debt Debt, debt, debt. Um, there's a saying, and it's, it's Buffett or one of those people. Um, it could be Einstein. It could be Einstein. Well, it's attributed to Einstein uh, that compounding is one of the is the eighth wonder of the world. Those who understand it, earn it. Those who don't understand it pay it. And it goes to this idea that if you're in debt and you don't understand what happens to debt as interest piles upon interest piles upon interest piles upon interest, you will end up getting yourself stuck in a financial cul de sac of no return. I think that's important to understand
8: exactly right and 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 i think a lot of us you know we we find debt easy to access and you know especially when when you you can just sort of tap and go on your phone uh, it's really easy to use and and almost addictive in a way so so firstly that it's so simple to use and secondly that it it takes us down a really deep hole very very quickly and 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 you know if you're not careful you find yourself you know kind of at the bottom of a very deep pit with a little bit of something and and almost no way out. And and so, you know, to take action and and kind of build yourself a ladder to get out of
0: there is really important. Okay, so the, the issue with debt is that if you ignore debt and if you pretend that it's not there, if you're a bit like the dog that ripped a hole in the couch and when the owner comes home, they're sitting in the corner just not making eye contact with anybody and certainly not looking at the couch, if you treat debt like that, it will, unlike the dog, come back and bite you.
8: It does. And 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 I think that, you know, your comment around the compounding, uh, what what happens is that you know every day and every week and every month that you're ignoring it because you know you you don't want to see the messages on your app or you're not looking at your emails, uh that that, that compounding thing just carries on. And you know, if you've got credit card debt, for example, that's uh you know, that that's uh costing you 25% a year, uh and understand that you know if you've got a hundred a hundred thousand rands of debt today in your credit card. In three years time, it's sitting at 200,000 rand and, and there is nothing in the world that grows as fast as, as, you know, credit card debt compounding against your 25% a year. So, you, you know, the, 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 the kind of point of this is not to scare you to say, uh, you, you know, kind of run, you know, m- you know, migrate to a country with no extradition from, from South Africa, but just <laughs> you can solve this problem, but you have to start yeah. by saying, I've got the problem. Uh, I know about it. And, and what I need to do now is, you know, it's kind of like that health check. You know, you can't just ignore that, uh, you know, that nagging cough that you've had for the last six months. You got to go to the doctor and figure it out and find out what's going on. And, and it's the same here: is start by actually just writing down all the debt you have. It might be scary, it might be depressing, but but just start. You know, you get an understanding of. I've got a credit card debt. I've got personal loans. I've got an overdraft, and and yes, it's frightening. But but I need to know what they are, and and most importantly, I need to know what the interest rates are. And once you've got it down, uh, it's amazing just writing it down, just actually figuring out what the problem is, and giving a name to it, and giving a face to it, and 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 then saying, okay, now I can do something about it. There, you know, the, here's my
0: enemy, and and I can I can see it, and I'm going to do something to take care of it. In the same way as people ignore their health and ignore all kinds of issues, they ignore family traumas and all sorts of things, people ignore debt, and it becomes this thing that gnaws away in their subconscious. They're waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning, they're not sleeping properly, so they're making worse decisions all the time because they're worried about this problem that they don't want to face in their waking hours. And that first, I mean, as with any problem, confronting it is the first issue. We're not saying don't have debt, though. We're not, I mean, I'm a big fan of credit cards. I use the bank's money all the time. And I say thank you very much for the interest-free um, use of your money. And at the end of the month, I make sure that the exactly the right amount—not a penny more, not a penny less. You certainly don't want to give them a penny less because then they charge you interest on the whole outstanding amount because they're clever that way. Um, but I, I, I do a direct debit, make absolutely certain that the full amount is paid off in total each and every single month, and then you know use the rewards programs, all of that sort of stuff. But if you don't have that discipline and you are have a propensity to overspend. Then avoid that kind of debt completely.
8: True, and 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 I think you, you know th- there are people that manage debt, uh, you know, incredibly well, and and uh, you, you know understand that that it becomes an, an enabler in, in very often. So, so people that that use debt to to create wealth, you know, th- they're the example of 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 where debt is a real power a kind of a power generator, but, but unfortunately, uh, for most, most of us around the world, that, that's not the case. And, and so we've got to use debt as a kind of a really scary, uh, weapon, you know, and, and, and something that can hurt us as much as it can help us and, and treat it with kid gloves. So. So yes, I, I, I'm b- by no means saying that, you know, debt is evil to everybody all the time, but, but I, I would say, you know, it's like a really fast car, you know, you, you shouldn't drive it very fast. And, and, you know, the fact that it can that doesn't mean you should, you know, and, and so, uh, you, you know, be, be careful that, you know, something that can get you from point A to B a bit quicker can also get you from point A to a brick wall very fast. And, and that's what mm-hmm. we're trying to avoid is, you know, it, it, just because you've got it doesn't mean you need to use it all the time to the max. And I think that that's maybe the, the starting point for someone who's in debt is just to just to say, okay, I've got this stuff and it's and it's hurting me now, but I can I can do something about it and I can take control uh, and 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 maybe there just to say, you know, once you've identified what this uh, what what your debts are and and you've got them,
0: then let's get a game plan and let's get get yourself out of this. That, that requires a budget. And for most people, again, an intimidating thing because a budget will tell you a truth that you don't necessarily want to face. And that truth is that there's a limited resource and that is the amount of income you have and a seemingly endless list of outgoings. And then the, the outgoings that come as a surprise. The doctor's visit you weren't anticipating, um the, the bumper bashing or um, that extra meal because, hey, Your friends were going, so you thought you should go as well. That idea of creating a budget so that you can then guide your expenditure more effectively is should be a non-negotiable. It should actually be a requirement by the banks. You can't have a credit card until we can see your budget or something. I don't know. It sounds too complicated, but it would be wonderful if the world worked like that. Unfortunately, they put the onus on us. So, so let, let's maybe,
8: you're right, cause, cause the word budget's kind of scary and intimidating for a lot of people. It sounds like you need to I'm have boring. a fancy accountant. Uh, yeah, yeah, true. Uh, so, so let's call it a spending plan. Uh, we're not saying don't spend. We're not saying don't have a life. What we're saying is, uh, just understand what it is that you, how you spend your money and what you spend your money on. And, and that's maybe the first step to, to kind of taking control of everything. So, so. My, my view is do something simple. You know, if, uh, you know, most of us have got smartphones nowadays, if you don't have it, you know, to get a little book and a little pen uh, and, and track what you spend every day for a month. D- d- nothing dramatic. Don't, I'm not saying make any changes. Just start by saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm starting tomorrow and tomorrow's Friday. And w- what do I spend my money on throughout the whole of Friday, then the whole of Saturday and, and just do it for one month? Uh, What that allows you to do is it allows you to see where your money goes. It'll be surprising. There'll there'll be things where you go, gee, I didn't realize that. You know, I I buy you know X rand's worth of coffee every day, or uh, you know, I spend money needlessly at at the the cafe on on you know magazines or whatever it is that you that, that that you kind of spend money on, and you think it's you know maybe a tiny portion of your of your monthly expenses, but actually it ends up being big. And and once you've got an idea of what that is and where you spend your money, then then look at it and say, well, you know, do I need, five coffees a day. Can I get away with three? You know, w- would my life would be, would my life be dramatically worse if I do that? Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I end up actually buying quite a lot of clothes. I didn't realize I'd do that every month. You know, can, can I get away with, you know, one shirt instead of three? And, 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 and so you go, and, and not to say you've got to change your entire life dramatically overnight, because that's uh, unfortunately like going on a crash diet, you know, it'll work for a month or two. Uh, and, and then the problem's going to come back way bigger because we, we can't live, uh, you know, without any joy in life. So, so maybe the starting point is get a spending plan, understand how you spend and then look at the things that are are surprisingly big in your, in your spending plan that are not so necessary and that won't change life dramatically if you cut them down. And somewhere along the line, you'll start to find that actually you can create a gap between what's coming in every month and what's going out. And that's the money you used to start,
0: you know, getting your debt down. And, and being ruthlessly honest with yourself. I mean, anybody who's ever been to see a dietitian knows that they're the ultimate in fun police, of course. Okay, okay, sorry, dietitians, but and essential fun police. Um, and they say, well, the first thing you do is sit down and write down everything that you eat. And you're not going to do that. You're going to lie like a cheap rug. And, and you think you can outsmart the dietitian. They catch you out because they look at the scale and they go, you're lying. Um, and so you, and they catch you out that way. Once you, when you're creating a budget, also be brutally honest. Uh, because only you truly know the extent of your own fin- dismal financial situation. Pick up on this with Warren in just a moment on The Money Show. The Money Show. Personal finance with Warren Ingram. So Warren, we're talking debt and getting control of debt. So once you've assessed your debt and you've done the budget and you know what you're spending, you really need to then tackle paying back the debt. And I suppose you start with the not the biggest debt first, necessarily, but certainly the debt that's costing you the most money on a on a regular basis. Well, well, well let's
8: maybe uh, say that there there are two possibilities, two strategies. So, so for some people, that they like to see uh, quick wins as fast as as possible, and and you know by winning, uh, even if it's a small win, they, they they find themselves motivated, and and that allows them to keep going and and for people like that there there is a strategy i didn't come up with a name but i like it it's called the debt snowball so so what you do is you you look at all your debts and you you make sure that you you are paying off the minimum required on all of your debts you can't ignore any of them because that gets you into real trouble with debt providers but then you look at the the smallest debt you've got and and you say okay now i've got this extra bit of money that i've found and 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 managed to create in my in my monthly expenses and And you take that extra money and you put it into the smallest debt, so you you make sure that you pay off that smallest debt uh as fast as you possibly can and so what it does is it gives you that psychological boost once that 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 small debt is paid off that you've achieved something and it and I'm not uh dismissing it you 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 have done something you, you you've kind of knocked one out of the the park. Uh, and, and then you take all the money that you were paying into that small debt and you allocate it to your now next smallest debt. And, and so you go. And what you find then is, you know, every time you knock one um, off the list, you, you've got more and more money, fewer and fewer debts. And, and so you go and eventually you, you get to the biggest debt and, and you've got extra money, you know, and significantly more money uh, to put into that debt. And, and so you watch it to diminish much quicker. And for some people, that, that's the best possible strategy. And it's not, it's not necessarily about maximum efficiency. It's about managing the psychology of, of, of money. And, and, and I like that for people who, who are
0: motivated by <sighs> quick wins. For, for others, that's no, exactly that might, right. I mean, well, because sorry, Warren. I mean, so many people confronting this, like people trying to lose weight or get fit or any other habit that you're trying to change. It's confronting it and then dealing with it in a way. That is achievable for you because you're going to get halfway through a process and you're going to be very sad because you've, you've had to, in order to start addressing the problem, change the fun stuff you were doing that caused the problem in the first place. And that's hard.
8: It is hard and 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 I think we you know we we're i mean human beings we're we're motivated by the you know the character and the stick and we, we you know if we just you know take the carrot away and and now we have no fun and and you know just hardship then it it doesn't it doesn't sustain we we can't live like that so so we have to find a way to to have uh, you know have reward have enjoyment. Uh, 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 while we're, while we're taking our medicine, that's incredibly necessary. And, and so you, you're right. We've got to find a way that that works for us. Uh, for, for someone like me, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I hate inefficiency in my life. So, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at my debts and I'm going to say, which one costs me the highest rate of interest. And it doesn't matter w- whether it's my smallest debt or my biggest debt, uh, that, that's the one I'm going to, I'm going to start paying off fastest because I, I don't want that, that higher rate of interest mm-hmm. to be compounding against me. And, and so for, 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 for people who, who are kind of motivated by numbers or efficiency, you, you might look at that and say, okay, I'm going for maximum efficiency. And, and uh, uh, that, that's the thing that motivates me is I don't want, I don't want this thing compounding against me any faster than necessary. And and that's called the debt avalanche. And and I like you know as I said works for me. But but I think a lot of people uh, w- would find the debt snowball much much more rewarding. And and I think you know what we've got to know about debt is uh, we, we we need to as you said at the start we've got to be honest with ourselves. We we, we can't lie to anybody because all that does uh, is, is it allows the debt's problem to get worse. So so you know lying to yourself is like you know going to the gym with a personal trainer and then you know sitting on the sidelines while the trainer trains and and you just get more and more. <laughs> And fit, you know, that doesn't help you so you, you've got to take control of this and yeah. and find the one that that works for you and if you know if it's the debt snowball and you you kind of get those small smaller debts out of your life well done and keep going and and once you mm. achieve something give yourself a reward and 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 you know th- then have a bit of a relax and and and, and take some time uh, to 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 kind of pat yourself on the back and then get going again you know and and, and before long you start to find this compounding thing working in your favor and not not against yeah. you and you know, to me that's the point here it's worth the effort and the reward to kind of allow
0: money to start to work for you and not not against you It is also how you shape it in your mind in terms of you're not sacrificing stuff. You're not giving things up so that you can get this monster debt under control. Yes, that's what you're doing. You are having to make sacrifices. But if you shape it differently in your own mind, saying, I've got a problem here and I need to solve this problem, I'm making positive choices. I'm beginning to sound like an American motivational speaker. It makes me feel a little bit nauseous. But yes. yeah, I'm, I'm making positive choices here for the future because I am robbing myself, my future self. And if I don't take control of this thing today, it just becomes bigger. And eventually other people will be making this choice for me. And then I have no control. Um, because once you go into debt review and all that sort of stuff, you, you, you're, you're then in proper trouble. Uh, because you've got no control over any process um, after that. So this is about being good to yourself, ultimately
8: it it is and and you know for for those uh sal- salary earners that get surveyed at big companies uh, they'll they'll ask salary earners what what's the biggest source of stress and and happiness in your life and it usually comes down to relationship stress and money stress and and often the two are related so you know if you're if you're in a um in a family or in in a a committed relationship and you're and you've got financial difficulty it's probably affecting everybody so so yes it's about taking care of yourself but it's also about taking care of your loved ones and i can't can't think of something that's more motivating than that so so please take control you know and, and and get get going
0: Edward needs to install a solar system to escape load shedding. He doesn't have any cash saved up for it because his budget is tight. He does have investments that he can liquidate. Should he use some of the investments initially intended for his retirement for this project? He's 40 years old. He says, I think I have enough time to make up the retirement savings. What do you think? Install, install, install. What do you think, Warren?
8: Uh, I'm I'm, I'm not sure Edward's going to like my answer. So... Uh, you know if this is about kind of return on fun or return on life uh you know and and you're gonna you're going to sell uh, money that's uh, you know investments that designed for your retirement so, so for your future self and you're going to cash those in now to 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 make sure that you you kind of have a bit more uh you know enjoyment and out of life right now because of of load shedding uh, and and there is no income benefit to doing that I'm I'm going to tell you, Edward, that I think you 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 shouldn't do that. I, I think you need to kind of find some monthly savings and and start building up uh, to to buy that that that, that solar system uh, to get yourself out of the the the, the solar problem or the the Eskom problem. But but if you are working from home and it affects your income. Uh, th- then
0: that's a totally different story, you know because this is you, not an excuse. You you... this is not yeah, this is not an excuse, Edward to say to your boss, I'm going to work from home now just so that you can get the solar. Don't try and twist this uh, this logic. What about renting? I mean, uh, you, nowadays you don't have to buy the stuff. you can rent it. Uh, yes, it comes at a premium, but you can rent it at a lower monthly rate than you can necess- that, that then you, you can avoid having the capital outlay up front and you know try and save some money in the process. but surely renting becomes an option. there are lots of people offering rental options.
8: They are and, and surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, lots of financial institutions involved. Uh, what that tells you right up front is that, uh, it, it's, it, you're, you're, you're not really renting it. You're kind of, you're, you're, you're doing a kind of a form Faulty. of higher purchase, but just be, just being called, uh, you know, renting. So, so just understand that there is a finance charge attached to to that and it's the same as leasing a car you know i I just don't like that idea i i think you put down a you know you try and pay the things cash and 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 get it out of your your life and and i feel in something like this i'm not dismissing the, the 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 impact of of load shedding on a on a family or anybody uh but but i think you can make some alternative arrangements that aren't that expensive. Uh, you you know, so, so to me, I don't like those, the, 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 and I'm sure I'm going to get lots of abuse now from the leasing people, but I don't like those, uh, you, you know, to get yourself. Uh, just some enjoyment. Again, if it's, if it's impacting your income, that's a totally different story. Th- then by all means do it. You know, that's the same as n- needing a car for work. But, but if, if it's, this has got nothing to do with work and nothing to do with income, th- then, you know, m- m- make a plan uh, to, to kind of get some light when, 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 when the lights go out and, and, and do something different, you know, but, but, but for now, I'm, I'm not a fan. The, the worst thing I think you can do is cash in your retirement savings for for something which isn't going to generate income. So, so I'm so opposed to this. Um, I, I can't I can't I can't say anything uh, kind of impolite now, but but gee, I think this is a bad idea, Bruce. It's probably the
0: best way I can <laughs> thank say you, it. Warren. That was a very controlled of you. Well done, uh, Warren Ingram, uh, co-founder of Galileo Capital. A surprising answer, a good answer, Edward, and one that uh, you should. Really listen to again and again and again and convince yourself that it is the right one because it's the hard choice. But hard choices are often the best choices when it comes to money and personal finance. Thank you, Warren Ingram.